Father and God, we do praise you for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior and our hope. He is our King and our Lord. He is uh, before us so that in him he, he might be preeminent in everything. He precedes us in death and resurrection so that he might be the first. Father, I pray that as we come to this time where we open your word, as we look at the words of your servant Paul to your servant Timothy, you would remind us of the glories of this gospel. That indeed this is the crowning moment of all creation. And these things we speak of are not side thoughts or afterthoughts, but are indeed the revelation of God to his creation. I praise you for the cross that it showed mercy and grace and love, but also justice and righteousness. And all of these things, God, we praise you, your name, and hope that our lives are offerings of worship. So it is in these things we pray for the glory of and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, you want to open it to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is where we'll be this morning. First Timothy. <clears throat> well, we started our look at 1 Timothy last week. And one of the things we, we brought out is that the entire book of Timothy seems to be Paul addressing his protege, if you will, Timothy, about the things he's going to need to stand against. That there are several false teachers invading the church and that Timothy needs to be prepared for those false teachers. And, and he begins to kind of put together some ideas saying, Timothy, these are things you're going to have to look out for and this is how to look out for them. But, but primary to this idea is that the gospel that Paul taught was being polluted or changed into something that was no gospel at all. And so this morning, as we do on the first Sunday of, of every month, we pause to talk about the gospel. And so our question this morning is, is as we're going to talk about 1 Timothy, what is this gospel that Paul is saying is being changed or polluted or or, or what is he asking Timothy to stand in the truth of? <clears throat> well, our first clue in how core this is to Paul's idea comes from the verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Well, the first little thing that will give us some, some, should send off some alarm bells or highlight or whatever is, is the very first few words that say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In all of Paul's letters, it is unique to what are called the pastoral letters. Now, Paul wrote letters to many churches, like those would be the letters that are the Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and Colossians. And then he wrote letters that are called the pastoral letters, meaning he wrote them to people telling them how to be leaders. And that's Timothy, the Timothy letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. 
And in the pastorals is the only place you find this phrase in Paul's writings. This statement is, is uh, trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. He only uses it five times. And it seems to be in places where he is summarizing a very great truth that he intends for Timothy or Titus to build the church on. Basically saying, this statement can be for you a litmus test. That if they accept this statement, they are inside of this gospel understanding. If they're not, they're not. This is worthy of full acceptance. You see that there? Now, here's the five places he uses it. It's here, obviously. He uses it when he says, eldering is a noble task. He uses it when he says, godliness has value in this life and the life to come. When he says, endure all things for the sake of the elect and that we are justified by grace and not by the things we have done. So we can see that whatever Paul is about to say in this statement is one that he considers of foundational importance to the gospel and the church itself. And in eight Greek words, Paul summarizes the gospel. And so this morning, what we're going to do is take a look at those words, break them down and put this into the center of our thought regarding the gospel, just as for Paul, it was the center of his understanding of the gospel. Now, are there gospel ramifications outside of this? Of course, of course there are. But to say that this is core to the gospel would be uh, of absolute importance. And you can see Paul's stressing of it. The first words are obviously the most or are, are, are very evident, and it's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Now, when we say this, we usually say Jesus Christ. And that's our vernacular. That's how we talk. We say Jesus Christ. And that's okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when Paul writes it, Paul writes the words Christ and Jesus together 31 times. And in those 31 times, 25 of those times, he writes Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, there's an understanding of that that plays along in it. Am I saying that you have to start saying that? That's absolutely what I'm saying. Yes. No. But there's a, there's, there's a reason that Paul puts that in that way. And, and, and it begins with the word Christ. Now, Christ in Greek means anointed. And it follows the Hebrew idea of the messenger of God who was to come to free the, the Jewish Hebrew people. Uh, you can begin to see tracks of this understanding of this person all the way back to the time of David. And as a matter of fact, what we're going to do here is, is take you back into the Old Testament and show you this idea of the Christ beginning to be formed. If you want to turn uh, with me to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, all the way back in the middle, Psalm 2. Now, some of the Psalms are what are called messianic Psalms, meaning they're about the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. Uh, just like you can find prophecies regarding Jesus in the prophets, that's the name of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel example, uh, you can find in the Psalms, uh, Psalms that are about this coming one. And Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic Psalms. Now, I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're only going to put some of the verses on the screen for you that we're going to kind of stop and focus on. So this is Psalm 2. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, right there, you can see the capital A on the word anointed there. But that is a Christian back reading into this psalm. They didn't, it wasn't originally emphasized. But the Hebrew word for anointed is the Hebrew word Meshach, Meshach, where we get our word Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed. The word Christ means anointed, just the Greek word. So if you say Jesus Christ is the Messiah, you're being anointed. I mean, you're being redundant because you're saying Jesus, the anointed is the anointed. They're the same idea. So you can see right here automatically that in Psalm 2, the writer is already talking about this Messiah, this anointed one, that they are plotting against the Lord and his anointed one. So it says this, this anointed one, uh, verse three begins, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the leaven, in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify, the, terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. <clears throat> so in Psalm 2, you have to pardon my voice today. I'm kind of losing it. I did a wedding yesterday that I had to yell at the bride and groom at a lot. So just it's going away. So we'll, we're going to fight through it. Um, you can see immediately here in Psalm 2 that what he's speaking here is automatically he said, this is my anointed in the same Psalm. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there's this idea that this anointed one has such a close relationship with God that he would be called <coughs> God's son. Now, continuing the thought, it says this in verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, here's verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic psalm. We see the ideas tied together, that the Lord's anointed will be called his son, and that even the kings of the earth are to bow down to this person. And they are to tremble at him. You, you can hear these verses of being afraid but very much also the beginning of an idea of blessed are the ones who take refuge in him. When Paul in 1 Timothy addresses Christ by the phrase Christ Jesus, one of the things we can begin to see is that for Paul, he's trying to denote the office of the person. That, that this man, Jesus, is this Christ but more than just a man who is anointed. And, and there, are, there are doctrines and false theologies that teach things like, well, Jesus was just a man who was anointed as this person. He wasn't God. But if you go to the New Testament, you can see that this Messiah and these ideas were very much interpreted to be God upon the full revelation of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you, it, We'll put it up on the screen for you. Hebrews chapter 1. 
Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, one of the very common uh, false teachings about Christ is that Jesus was an angel, that he was a created angel that came and did these things. This exists today in Jehovah's Witnessdom. Um, but Hebrews refutes this idea that Jesus was an angel. Now, pay attention to what it, what the... What Hebrews says here, it says, for which to, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and here's Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2? It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, you know there are There are a few things that God does not share with anyone. That God refuses there to be even an inkling of worship to anyone but him. It was idolatry. It was a sin punishable by death in Israel. It's the reason Israel was run off the land. That God would put into his scriptures that whoever this Meshach was, was to be worshipped, should set alarm bells off. Are you following me? That God is saying, this person is to be worshipped. Can begin to give us an inkling of what Christ meant. Now follow these verses because you're going to see this kind of redundant language come back. And it's very interesting. Verse 7, he says this. Of the angels, remember, comparison, contrast. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And verse 8 says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calling this son God. God doesn't call anybody God except God. Only God is called God by God. Are you with me? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of the uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Anointed. See the word? With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, all those are Old Testament quotes. The picture very much here is that Paul is trying to say this office of Christ was to be held by God himself. A fact that is affirmed with the second part of the moniker, Jesus. The word Jesus, as you've probably heard me saying here several times, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua. And the Hebrew name Joshua means the Lord saves. Literally, it means Jehovah saves. If you don't know what Jehovah is, Jehovah is our translation of the Hebrew name of God given to Moses, which is more accurately pronounced Yahweh. That's the idea that this Christ is God and the guy's name who did it is God is saving you. You see, it had to be God who made redemption for humanity. A human cannot make redemption for humanity. These, these ideas and these, these Christian, uh, I would say aberrations that are saying, well, no, Jesus wasn't God are misinterpreting the entire picture that a human cannot make sacrifice for humans. It had to be God. It had to be God. Uh, on a side note, I'll say to you, this is why the virgin birth 
is an essential doctrine. It becomes very culturally convenient to set the virgin birth aside and just kind of go, well, let's not talk about it. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters because a human cannot atone for humanity. It had to be something more. And if we go back to the first Timothy verse, you're going to see Paul playing into that very idea. Back in first Timothy chapter one, verse 15, watch what he says. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. And there's an idea of pre-existence here that he entered the world to do this, that he existed before the world and entered the world to do something. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about Timothy is stationed in Ephesus. And so while we're studying first Timothy, if you wanted to go do a little side study that would help you with some of these things, Ephesians would be a great book to read in correlation to first Timothy. But I want to show you something that Paul wrote to the Ephesians about this eternality of this Christ and this gospel plan in Ephesians chapter one, verse three and five through five, he says this blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus' coming was an afterthought. It would be a mistake to think that when Adam and Eve sinned, God was up in heaven and kind of went, oh, okay, we need a council. we got to figure out what to do now. That's paradise lost, right? That's not Bible. Bible is before the world was even created, this image of God was going to be shown. That Christ was going to come into the world. That before it even began, this was the idea. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, if you go to the Gospels and you read about the way the disciples understood Jesus' birth, they tie in this idea of the eternality of God coming with us. Uh, In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, this is speaking about the birth of Jesus. And it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. This prophecy occurred hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it's the very idea that this this one who exists outside of creation, who has existed outside of creation forever, is now entering it. Uh, the, the, the word Emmanuel meaning literally God beside us. Beside us. And in English, we can use a metaphorical saying, saying, I'm with you, brother, meaning I'm with you. But that's not what this means. This means spatially beside you, physically there. As a matter of fact, when I say Emmanuel, most of you in the room immediately translate it, God is with us, right? But that's changed in most biblical translations recently because the the, the translators are going, we don't want you to confuse this with the English saying, Of a metaphor. It needs to be much more a physical representation. 
God there. See that dude over there? That's God. John the Baptist points him over the hill. There he is. We use the word incarnation uh, to, to, to talk about this doctrine. What's funny about that is the word means in meat. That's what the word, that's what the word means. We get all fancy, the incarnation of Christ. It could be meat sack. Okay, that's what it means. That Jesus is God among us. Flesh and bone. He is with us. That he came into this world. But if you read the verse right before this, these two verses, Matthew 1, 21, watch what it says. It says, she will bear a son, meaning Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? What does it mean? What does Jesus mean? The Lord saves. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is verse 21. He will save the people from their sins. When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save. To save. Let me tell you one of the biggest gospel misconceptions I run into and you run into. You may just not really have been able to articulate it or identify it. It's the idea that people who aren't Christians have that, that they'll say, so you're telling me if I reject Jesus, I'm going to hell. That's what you're saying. So if I don't believe what you believe, I'm going to hell. That is a gospel misconception. I don't know how to put this any other way than very bluntly because that's how I roll. Ready? Accepting Jesus has nothing to do with being condemned to hell. Sin condemns to hell. Rejecting Jesus is the final straw. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting the only hope you have of not going to hell. Rejecting Jesus has nothing to do with it. So you're saying, if I don't accept Jesus, I'm going to hell. No, you're going to hell already. You're just rejecting the only way you have of getting out. Which is very popular. I'm a very popular man. Right? This is the idea. This is the, where, where the church is afraid to confront sin as sin and, and made the litmus test Jesus. Well, Jesus is the litmus test for forgiveness. But a sin that can condemn you to hell is anything from lying to murder and everyone in between. When Paul makes his lists in his epistles about regarding sin, the first one he lists is not, well, you rejected Jesus and you're a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. You disobey your parents. I always put that one in there because parents give me a little something under the table to make sure I say that. If you don't believe me, watch. Let's listen to what Jesus said. Ready? You're going to love this. John 3, 17. Okay? John 3, 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The idea is that the rejection of Jesus, if you will, is the final straw. That was your last thing. It is a sin to reject Jesus. It's just not the sin that's going to condemn you. Get in line. It's getting in line. But 
this message, this gospel message is not about condemnation. It is about salvation. The message of the law is the message of condemnation. The message of Christ is the message of salvation. And that Jesus Christ came to save, First Timothy says, sinners. These are my favorite quotes from Jesus. I bet they are yours too. Things like, I have not come for the sick, for the healthy. I've come for the sick. It's not the righteous who need me. It's the unrighteous. Luke uh, 19.10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. This is why they call it good news. John Calvin, commenting on Luke 19.10, says, Christ invites all sinners to the sure hope of obtaining pardon. Amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul would summarize it greatly in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And to me, the most important verses in the whole Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is why we go to the table. It's why we're here. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul said, of who I am the foremost. Meaning that it's for every one of us. That just as Paul would look at himself and say, I need this salvation. It is our prayer as a church that every person here is looking at themselves saying, I need this salvation. There is none who is excluded from sin. And none who is excluded from forgiveness. Should they seek it. Let me pray, and then we have a couple of things we're going to do, and you'll be dismissed. Our Father and God, we praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior and hope. I pray that as we uh, would walk this week forward, you would remind us of the glories of this forgiveness, that indeed we would be lights to your glory. I pray that you remind us of our sins, indeed, that we would seek to walk tomorrow more holy and more righteous and upright than we did this day. For your glory. And for your honor. And so that the name of Jesus would be magnified. But God, I also pray you would shield us from any illusion that our goodness could save us. And that indeed the cross of Christ would be foremost. That it would form our thoughts. And that we would remember and tell that this is of utmost importance, that this is worthy of full acceptance, that you came to save sinners. And we praise your name.